When we consider our Dhamma practice on a daily basis, one of the very useful reflections we can bring up is the Awada Patimoka. As we chant, Sabha Bhapasa Akaranang Kusala Supasampada Sachita Pariyotapanang Etang Bhutana Sasanang Abandoning unwholesome dhammas Developing wholesome dhammas Purifying the mind This is the teaching of all Buddhas Patient endurance is the supreme destroyer of defilement. A very simple verse that we can always turn to to direct ourselves back to the practice at any time. In Asian Buddhist cultures, the sense of abandoning the unwholesome, developing the wholesome, just as uh, teaching is and as a concept or an idea that people talk about is very well established. So the sense of punya merit, meritorious action, wholesome action, bhapa, unwholesome, evil action, as two qualities that we have to learn to recognize and develop, punya, abandon bhapa. Very well known, talked about, in traditional Buddhist culture. It gives people at least some, however vague, understanding of how to practice. We abandon evil and we develop good, do good. But obviously it requires us to learn what is unwholesome Dhamma and what is wholesome Dhamma. And this is part of our training, is developing that understanding. First from what we hear and learn externally and then reflecting on our behavior. Body, speech and mind to see what is wholesome and unwholesome. Ajahn Chah pointed out that we often focus on the wholesome, the positive, which is correct. And we say we like to make good karma and develop the wholesome karma. But he also noted people find it more difficult and don't like to abandon unwholesome karma. We can see this in our own practice that we often come to the monastery and we train and we like to practice meditation and learn the techniques and hear the Dhamma. But we also bring our with us our unwholesome tendencies and often we neglect to look at these and so often our efforts in meditation and general Dhamma training doesn't always bring 
the kind of result we want or expect or not as quickly as we hope for often because we are only concentrating on and developing the good but not recognizing we also have to abandon the unwholesome Over and over again, our teachers talk about this simple way of looking at practice. They say, even they talk about Nibbāna, if one completely abandons unwholesome dhammas from the mind, completely purifies the mind from them, then that is Nibbāna. So the nature of the practice is such that we, we are abandoning unwholesome dhammas on the level of sila and then on the level of samadhi and ultimately on the level of panya right through to the most refined avicca, the most refined conceit. Still our unwholesome dhammas which are to be abandoned and when abandoned then the mind reaches Nibbāna back to its pure undefiled form or they talk about one who doesn't practice at the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of karma and spiritual practice say one who enters hell is one whose old merit old wholesome karma is completely used up and they haven't made any fresh new wholesome karma so the mind reaches rock bottom and enters a state of uh, hell, hell-like existence. And that sense also of being one who is both using up old merit, wholesome karma generated previously, again very strong a perception in Asian Buddhist culture that we have our old merit that has brought us to this point in life but then that is something that can be used up and we are using up all the time as a reflection to urge us on to make fresh merit to bring that sense of urgency that we do have to make fresh merit as we go through life and not to waste time or waste our chance to make merit, develop wholesome karma. So often this, these concepts can become a bit simplistic or oversimplistic, but nevertheless they're still useful maybe reflections on a daily basis to look at our, particularly our mind and the intentions, the mental states that are coming up to recognize unwholesome dhammas, kilesas for what they are and to always be looking at uh, finding ways to abandon them first of all to recognize them, find them see them and then to abandon them and then also to develop the good the positive
if we look at the mind in the way the Buddha and the teachers describe as being that which is pure in its essence, radiant, undefiled, this also helps us to understand and look at Kilesa more skillfully and to see, well, it's these are mental qualities, dhammas, mental states that arise with the mind, but they are not the same thing as the mind. They're what we call akanduka, they're visitors that arise, take their opportunity and when conditions are right they arise, but they pass away from moment to moment. And this is a very deep reflection as well to see that they are that which can, can condition the mind and bring us suffering, but they are not the mind. Might even look at the mind as if an empty vessel. And has come into it, they cover it over it. We even use the word obscurations for Kilesa, that which obscures that obscures the radiance of the mind. So it could be just a brief moment of unwholesome thought and intention. Just, we say, just sullying the mind, blemishing the mind. Or it could be repeated indulgence, a very sort of stubborn mood that keeps coming up, even though it's made up of individual moments of unwholesome dhammas arising but the overall effect is a continuous state of unwholesome dhammas taking over the mind obscuring its peaceful radiance but as we reflect we can see that even though kilesas of different kinds might arise often unwholesome dhammas come up to plague us sometimes, disturb us, cause us suffering. They are not us, they're not self. They are conditions that come up and pass away again. And that recognition of that fact, well that's wisdom. That's insight. And often that in itself is enough to help undermine the kilesas that do come up and take over the mind. But we do have to train ourselves to look to recognize this fact. So all of the monastic training is helping us with that. As we come into the monastery and, and start learning to keep the precepts, follow the routine, live in a simple environment, following the practices of the Vinaya. This is all dedicated to helping us to see, recognize unwholesome dhammas arising and then abandon them and developing the wholesome dhammas through the practice. But obstacles do come up, situations, our own internal moods and mental states come up that prevent us from seeing the Dhamma or bring us difficulty and then even external conditions can also bring us difficulty and that's where we need that patience that the Buddha referred to, the patience, the endurance to stick with the practice to allow the mind to see Kilesa and abandon Kilesa and develop that which is wholesome, the path. So every day we reflect on, say, the requisites that we use in the monastery, how we obtain them, how we use them, and developing contentment 
also contemplating you know, the nature of the, the requisites, the material things that we use in our lives. To see these are things, ultimately these are not us, they're not me or mine, myself. They're made up of the four elements, they're offered to us freely by the laity, we don't exploit the laity by going out and bothering them, asking them, seeking them, seeking things from them. We receive what comes freely, is freely given, and then we contemplate. They come to us and then what happens is we use them where well, they become soiled, they become old, worn out, they're impermanent. Physically the body soils the requisites we use, the kuti, the robes, the food. Everything becomes slightly soiled, becomes unpleasant the more we use it. And these are all basic daily reflections we can bring up to curb the opposite, you know, the, to curb the unwholesome dhammas that might around, arise around using requisites, the desires for things, the attachment to things, the not seeing of the truth of anicca dukkha anatta or the asupa of the requisites. These are what these basic reflections help us to do, to achieve, helping us to eradicate or abandon unwholesome dhammas that have arisen or to prevent them from arising again. Obviously just this simple practice of daily reflection on our requisites, what we're using, how much, and the attitude we have towards the requisites, how much of a sense of possessiveness or attachment we might have, and the suffering that may cause, or the expectations we may have, the entitlements we may have, sense of entitlement that might come up through our past karmic conditioning. We have to look at that and see the suffering it causes. When you look back at the lives of our teachers, probably these kind of, kind of reflections, they took very seriously, great sincerity. If you read their biographies or hear the talks they gave, just the reflection on the requisites daily, use of requisites, use of food, contemplating food and so on. Very, very vital to the practice, right at the heart of our practice because it's what we're dealing with every day. And so the thoughts, the attitudes that come up and we have to look at every day and notice where there is unwholesome dhammas arising or where to develop the wholesome dhamma. And just something as simple as, say, using a robe, a sabong or a jiwan. Everybody probably remembers the stories, like people, teachers like Lumpur Cha. When he was first on Tudong, the Majjhima Bhikkhu, just using his sabong and refusing to ask for anything from anybody, even his own family. He just wanted to just keep using it let go of his desire to get a new one or to get better cloth. He just kept using it and over and over again till eventually still having not nobody having noticed it, it completely split so worn out. He actually brought a, a tear to his eyes thinking how difficult it was working with Kilesa. Just that desire to want to ask for us some new cloth, just working with that, not wanting to give into it, making, we say, making merit, making barami, simply by not following a desire. So a very silent, personal kind of practice that only in later years we're lucky enough to know about because he t told us. If he hadn't told us, probably wouldn't ever even realized how somebody can make merit in such a way. 
And through his good fortune, one of his early teachers, Lumpur Ginnery, noticed his sabong was worn out and told his sister, who was a nun in the monastery, she got some of the local cloth and sewed up the sabong, if I remember right, and it was offered to Ajahn Chah, who was very appreciative obviously of getting a new robe and also the fact that it can come in a completely pure way you didn't seek it, ask for it somebody else recognized the need and offered using their wisdom so it kind of floated to him just like we described for a katina cloth it floats in in a pure way and the fact that he described this to us in later years indicates probably there was some very important dhamma for him in that whole episode of his life. Certainly you can see the, the role of patient endurance dealing with desires and not giving in to them. And the clear recognition of, of desire, dhanha, leading to upadana, coming up maybe regularly, frequently thinking about mm, am I going to get this robe, how should I get a robe, or whatever but dealing with it by abandoning it not following it, not indulging it so even the most simple reflections on the requisites we use day in day out can be can lead to breakthrough in Dhamma can lead to complete Abandoning or, abandoning or certain kilesa, unwholesome dhammas. More recently hearing about Lumpurian talking about his early life, just the obstacles to starting practice of meditation as he was ordained in there's a study in a monastery that emphasized study of the suttas and Pali and the Vinaya was not kept very strictly but he always had this sort of seed inside of him that wanted to not just read about the Dhamma and learn it although he appreciated that but he wanted to actually practice that Dhamma that he'd read he wanted to learn how to meditate and he sought for a peaceful mind recognizing that, that he needed to go deeper in his practice than just reading the books but to break out of that in the sense of uh, literally to find a teacher leave the original monastery was involved quite a lot of obstacles for him coming up so had to deal with um, just the basic desire to disrobe and the sort of all the pressure to have a wife get married, settle down. Very uh, powerful desire for him. Came up many times during that those first few years. Probably he wasn't also wasn't meditating, so perhaps the mindfulness and the wisdom not so strong. So it was really bothering him. Till he finally set it aside. And he'd heard of one teacher. He wanted to follow that teacher, go out uh, to his forest monastery and practice. And just as he made the decision to leave the study monastery, this insect, large insect with a very sort of stiff body flew into his eye one day and just completely damaged his eye so it became infected and inflamed literally the day before he was planning to leave the monastery to go and, and live in a forest monastery so he had felt he had to stay and look after this eye injury and got all these medicine, different medicines to look after it and none of it was working, I think it took a few weeks and nothing was working and he was getting frustrated with not being able to leave to go and 
moved to the meditation monastery. And then one day he just had this insight. He thought, well, what I, why do I want to go to the meditation monastery? It's because I want to dedicate my life to the practice of Dhamma and Vinaya until I reach Nibbana. And I'm willing to give up everything, overcome all the obstacles, give up everything. He said at that moment he just thought, that's it. So he just threw away all the medicine or gave it away. He said, I'm not going to use this medicine. I've been waiting weeks now. Nothing's been improving with my eye. So he just gave it all away and he just walked out of the monastery with a friend, another monk, and went off to the other, to the forest monastery. He said within one week, without any medicine at all, we're just meditating and having given up all the attachment and the hoping and wanting to get the eye better, within one week it was cured. His way of describing it is, is you know, the arising of meritorious dhammas, a refined point which obviously is not, not everybody maybe can practice but giving up the attachment, the wanting the attachment to the body and the wanting it to be better the unwholesome Dhamma, giving that up, practicing renunciation, giving rise to strong faith, putting effort into the development of mindfulness, which is the developing the wholesome Dhamma, it actually brought that result, the result of the arising of meritorious Dhammas, where the eye was healed through the Dhamma, not through any medicine. Over and over again we hear of uh, our teachers using the Dhamma, the Vinaya in this way, dedicating themselves to the practice as a way of raising up maybe the level of consciousness, the level of meritorious wholesome Dhammas through effort and patience and renunciation, these different qualities as a support for just the basic techniques obviously of mindfulness and insight. But often very simple situations in the monastery can be a cause for merit to be made, uh, unwholesome dhammas to be abandoned. The whole nature of the monastic training requires say, developing um, the Brahma-Vihara Dhammas. We use these as the foundation of communal living. As monks, the Vinaya is based on Brahma-Viharas in developing basic goodwill towards others, towards the fellow monks, towards the creatures of the forest, towards the laity who support us. As a direct counter to the unwholesome Dhamma to be abandoned of ill will anger or aversion. So our training is always bringing up different kinds of metta, both as meditation, as enchanting, reflections, and then in our speech, say the, the speech of one with the mind of metta, they call biyawaja. Biya means like beautiful, so it's actually beautiful speech when the intention is coming from metta. As bhikkhus, that's what we're training in biyawaja, the speech that is free from ill will, from scolding or making fun of, or displaying anger or conceit in different ways. Very obvious practices, but all the monastic training is directing us to this. Speech that is gentle, kind, uh, to the point, said at the right time. It's a training, often we don't know what to say in different situations, so we have to think of it, and that's, that's the bringing up of wholesome dhammas, of thinking what is the right thing to say, when it's the right time to listen, when it's the right time to speak, what are the right words, the best choice of words. You know, this is training in developing wholesome dhammas and then 
discarding the unwholesome dhammas that might come out in speech, the un, unskillful speech that maybe we have got used to in the lay life. We're learning to set that aside. And then having the patience, the endurance to practice that, because obviously it can't happen overnight, it takes time. But we see when we practice metta as a, both as a meditation and develop as an attitude and then develop biyawaja in the monastery, meditation itself becomes much easier. There's less stuff in the mind, less regret about things we've said or didn't, should have said that didn't or said that we shouldn't. The regret or, or negativity based around a loss of matter in daily life. And this directly supports the, uh, the the practice of meditation. It's not something separate. And development of karuna, and compassion. You know, all our life involves much service. And the vinaya requires us and encourages us to practice service service to the other monks. We look after each other when we're sick, we serve senior monks, we perform duties for the Sangha, different roles as a store monk or a kuti, lodging monk, roles in teaching, in helping other monks with requisites, prepare their requisites, advise them how to look after their requisites and so on. And this is acts of service, wise acts of service, partly out of compassion to help you, know, particularly you know, senior monks help juniors or juniors might appreciate the support needed by seniors and offer that service so out of compassion and then a service to the laity as a whole out of compassion for them, maybe just keeping the Vinaya, leading a peaceful, quiet life dedicated to meditation, even without saying or doing very much directly for laity, but we can be doing that out of compassion for them. Uh, receiving their arms every day, the food we eat, is actually giving an opportunity for people to make merit, to do good in that sense. Living in a harmless way, we give safety, security to those people we meet, we encounter. Being sensitive to their suffering, the stresses of the laity. They have to work, earn money, they have all kinds of problems and obstacles in their lives. So being sensitive to that, this is all compassion. Mudita, developing appreciation for each other as bhikkhus, as fellow practitioners. The opposite of seeing each other as rivals, competitors, competing for the requisites or competing for the lay people's attention or competing for personal gain in some way. We're giving up that as the unwholesome dhamma to be abandoned and developing kindness, compassion, and appreciation of each other. So if we hear somebody, their practice is going well, then it can be a source of joy if we're developing mudita, rather than a sense of you know, giving rise to jealousy or unhappiness because someone else is doing well and we're not, can be any, uh, a genuine sense of joy. If someone else's practice is going well, well, you know they're going to be of benefit to the world and that can inspire us or motivate us to practice as well. Or the good that others do, and the different skills we all have. Everyone here has different skills. Every monastery, the monks here, other monasteries, they all have different skills and things that they offer to the community. And we can appreciate that. And monks don't have a lot of 
material wealth, but when one sees another monk you know, maybe giving up some small requisite to another monk, giving it away as a gift, can practice mudita for that kind act. Or when someone gives you know, unasked for help, just offers help to make a requisite or help that monk in some way, however small or great, one can appreciate those kind of acts when one sees or hears about them. Words of advice that we give to each other, words of encouragement, words of praise. One can have mudita for other monks, either express it oneself or just observe it, recognize it. The Buddha's example of this is the great Monks of Venerable Sariputta Moggallana often expressing quite openly their appreciation of each other. They both have quite different skills, qualities, both great in their own way, in their own character, but also mutually appreciating each other, not seeing each other as rivals or as sort of one is right, one is wrong. Uh, maybe there's the time Venerable Sariputta sees Moggallana very radiant, knowing he has great mastery of samadhi. Thinks maybe he's entered or come out of deep state of samadhi, so asks him why is he so radiant today. He says, oh, it's because I heard the Dhamma of the Buddha. But the Buddha was living many, many kilometers away, so how could that be? So Sariputta asked, did you use your psychic ability and fly there. He said, no, I used my clear audience, directed the ear. Deepa Sota, the divine ear, to listen to the Buddha's discourse for the day. Sorry, Buddha, how wonderful, how marvelous. Moggallana can do such things, can use the divine ear to hear a discourse of Dhamma many kilometers away. And the radiance, the piti sukha arising from that, how wonderful, I can't do that. A recognition of somebody's good qualities without being jealous or feeling disappointed in oneself, but just an unbiased, very natural, very easy recognition of that. And Moggallana always, in return, talking about Sariputta's great wisdom. Nobody can compare with the wisdom faculty of Sariputta. The Buddha said that yes, only Sariputta's wisdom can compare with the Buddha in terms of analytical knowledge and ability to explain and penetrate the Dhamma in different ways. So not a sense of, oh, I'm a wisdom monk, you're a samadhi monk, and having a sort of rivalry or who's better relationship. There's a mutual admiration, mutual respect, mutual appreciation. Over and over again we hear those sort of stories through the suttas or the commentaries. You can see when mudita is practiced in a monastery, then it brings up a great sense of joy. We can appreciate each other. And it's a very positive, meritorious dhamma. And the opposite, the sort of sense of jealousy or rivalry or putting each other down, fades when mudita is practiced. Even one's when mudita is perfectly practiced, and even one's own sense of putting oneself down, see, disparaging oneself, disappointed in oneself, feeling I don't have enough good qualities, I'm not skilled, fades, and one recognizes the good dhammas that one has achieved, as all of us have. And it's just a simple statement of truth to say that we have merit, We've been born as human beings, so we have merit. We have heard the Dhamma, so we have merit. We've become Buddhist monks or taken ordination, we have merit. However, 
advanced or inferior we feel our personal practices, we all already have achieved merit. And mudita is also recognizing that in each one of us. And upeka is also recognizing that we are owners of our karma. And developing upeka towards the different situations that arise in our day in the monastery, in our lives, in the lives of those around us. Understanding we all have our karma to work through, so we're often we're at different stages in our practice or we're encountering different problems perhaps. This is all dependent on our karma and there's not a lot we can do. We shouldn't judge people too harshly when they're having to work through their karma. It doesn't make much difference to it. Or we have to have upeko dealing with our own karma. And when the negative dhammas do arise, then we need the patience and the upeka to be able to bear with them until they fade away, or until we find a skillful means to let them go and abandon them. Practice of Upeka in the monastery also brings forth a quality they call Samanyata, where one knows the appropriate way to act in different situations. The word Saman in Thai it's like, it means ordinary, learning how to be ordinary, the opposite of being you know, special or important in some way. And we practice this on many levels, on the level of sila, it's just, you know, we are ordinary in the sense, well, when there's sangha duties or chores to perform, we, we do it, we don't feel ourselves special, we don't have to do it for some reason, we're special. Or the different responsibilities in the vinaya, we don't sort of say, I'm special, I can uh, miss out on those rules or I don't need to show respect to other monks because I'm special. You know, it's that kind of reflection comes both with upeka and letting go of a lot of self and this quality of samanyata coming up. The sila makes our behavior very graceful and beautiful in the monastery because of the more coarser extreme sense of self that often you see in worldly society it fades away because we do, we all shave our heads, wear the same robes, follow the same vinaya. There's a sense of samanyata, sila samanyata in our behavior, which is actually very beautiful. We don't act overtly in selfish ways even though we might have selfish tendencies arise, but our sila prevents us from following them through, which makes our behavior very beautiful to see. And we learn how to be ordinary in the sense that this is a great supportive quality for the arising of samadhi and insight. Being ordinary within our own candors, not giving over importance to our five candors, so, you know, not being too selfish or too conceited or too inflated in our behavior. Obviously, this is a great cause for the ending of dukkha. As the more we can be ordinary within our candors, using our five candors just in an, in an ordinary sense, following the routine of the monastery, developing an ordinary attitude of, our body is just like this, it's just just this way. The feelings we're experiencing, pleasure and pain, are just like this. The perceptions we have are just like this, the thought formation is just like this, just ordinary. In the sense of not giving too much self-importance to our candors and then displaying that in our behavior. If we can do this, it makes our, our mind very peaceful. Our behavior peaceful, and very beautiful to watch. So again, you recognize in some of these great teachers, although we revere them, we respect them, we bow to them, we recollect them, we talk about them, but also you go and visit them or hear their Dhamma, 
there's a great sense of just being very ordinary because the Dhamma is in that sense, although it is the vehicle for enlightenment, but it's also just pointing to the truth, which is just as it is, it's just ordinary. And the more we bring our minds in line with truth, our behavior, external and internal, becomes ordinary. And that could be something very simple, just like, you know, like cold weather, like when strong sense of self arises or cold weather brings up a lot of suffering because we're not treating the sense contact, the touch of the cold feeling on the skin and then the, maybe the unpleasant weight in our arising from that. We're not treating it as just ordinary. We make it as something big that affects us, conditions us. Or with heat, maybe the, the attachment, the seeking of heat Again, it becomes out of ordinary in the mind if we are not aware of this. So it becomes even something just like heat and cold becomes something that makes us act out of ordinary, out of the ordinary. Our perceptions become out of the ordinary. So we give great importance to heat perhaps and want to get away from cold when we're not reflecting in this way. Or people... We make friends perhaps, so then we have people we like, people we don't like, and those perceptions become very out of ordinary and very important in the mind, so we can't just relate in an ordinary way to everybody, we have a sort of bias in the mind. Or to the requisites, and some requisites become very important to us because of the bias that we develop, and they become out of the ordinary. So we want them or seek them or cling to them, attach to them. This is something as we practice mindfulness and reflect, you know, we can see how the mind is always giving importance to things and then suffering comes. Obviously the more you give importance to things, the more the sense of self grows and the more suffering that will come, the more mental proliferation that comes the more greed and aversion, delusion is, is conditioned and arises. You meet teachers like Lung Tabua, Lung Pucha, Lung Popli, and all the teachers we meet, a great sense of just the ordinariness of things, not getting too excited agitated, you're not too excited by the pleasant experiences, not too agitated or upset by the unpleasant, because the mind has come into, into contact with the ordinary, in the sense of just seeing things as they are, seeing the candors as the candors, not as a self, not building up a big self-image around form, feeling, perception, thought, sense consciousness ordinary about the use of the requisites, the attaining of the requisites, ordinary about the weather, ordinary about people, not too biased or excited by people or agitated and averse by people, brings the mind to a sense of ordinary and of course that's where mindfulness and insight is operating at its best, can just observe and recognize Dhamma. This doesn't actually maybe sound too attractive in the beginning, in bringing your mind to a state of that which is ordinary. Because the world tends to favor and look for the extraordinary. The Kalesas look for the extraordinary. This is the Buddha taught, you know, the very basic attitudes we have to practice and our belief systems, our views, you tend towards either Kama Sukhali Kana Yoga or Atakilamatana Yoga. The, the extraordinary kinds of practice where we either see, sense pleasures and Sukha Vaitana derived from sense pleasures as, as the way to go, as the way to develop ultimate happiness. So always seeking pleasure and comfort. You know, moving away from the ordinary to the extraordinary in the sense of ever more refined pleasure, 
pleasure of the senses in this world, the pleasure of the senses in the heaven realms, whatever. It's moving from the ordinary to the extraordinary. It's one extreme we tend towards. Atakilamatanu yoga, tending towards the extreme of giving ourselves a hard time, pain. If it pain, if it's painful, it, it's probably leading to my spiritual perfection. So we harm ourselves even, put the body under extremes. We go to aversion, get, want to maybe even want to just destroy the defilements rather than recognize and let go of them. We try to force them out of the mind. Physically, mentally, use willpower and aversion in our practice. It's another kind of extreme, but again, it goes goes away from the ordinary, just recognizing the truth in things and recognizing the true nature of these five khandhas as anicca dukkha anatta, building up an extreme form of self out of the ordinary, either going towards pleasure or pain. And this must be quite an important point in the practice because the Buddha brought it up first in the Dhammachaka Sutta before he even explained the Four Noble Truths. He just said that these, there are these two extremes in practice which people tend towards. Both of them are low, both of them are misguided, coming from wrong view, not from wisdom. You notice one who has developed the path bring their mind to this great sense of peace and with that this sense of ordinariness. It's just that in line with the way of thing we ain't way it is. They understand the way it is. They know for themselves what is what and the way things are. Not deluded and not going to extremes, not grasping at different kinds of delusions of self and expecting the material or the immaterial world to bring ultimate happiness and knowing it's a nature dukkha anatta. So the highest merit, the highest wholesome dhammas is Development of right view, straightening one's views in line with the Dhamma through Sila Samadhi Pratpanya, developing this to the point where the mind just sees, experiences the Dhamma as it is without clinging or grasping. If we can keep reflecting on this, keep looking for where the unwholesome Dhammas are arising, recognizing them looking for ways to abandon them using patience, using mindfulness, using wisdom. Then little by little we can do that, abandon the unwholesome, develop the wholesome, purify the mind. So I'll leave these few words with you for your contemplation tonight.